Lord, we long to experience um, what is true. Would you help us experience the reality of your presence here? Because we are convinced that you have promised where two or more of us are gathered in your name, you are here too. And so um, make us aware of what is already true, um, both by your presence and in your word, so that um, increasingly we would hear you, respond to you with obedience and love, and then be encouraged uh, in the day to come. Um, to you be the honor and glory forever. Amen. Um, as a number of people have pointed out, uh, we're in Memorial Day weekend, and it struck me that there's no other holiday where the meaning of the holiday is potentially more separated from its celebration than Memorial Day. Right? Even Christmas, with its kind of orgy of consumerism and busyness, at least has at its heart some recognition that we've received a tremendous gift and that we should reciprocate by offering the world a gift as well. But Memorial Day, I mean... At least for most people, right, Memorial Day has really become the celebration of the first day of the summer season. Um, it's filled with picnics at the beach or backyard barbecues, rather than um, a really sober reminder that the safety and the security that we enjoy now was bought at the price of hundreds of thousands of lives that were um, sacrificed so that we could enjoy what we're enjoying now and are being paid still in many parts of the world. Um, and I think that Memorial Day is hard for us as Americans because, frankly, we don't like to have to acknowledge that a lot of our joy has been bought by suffering. We really like our lives here, I think, United States, um, a little bit like Disney World, where it's beautiful all the time, everything's well-kept, all the people are friendly, and all of the background machinery and garbage happens somewhere else behind the buildings that we never actually really need to see. The problem, of course, is that's vacation and it's not life. Right? That's not actually how we experience life. And so I think as a country, we often need, we, we desperately need, I think as Americans, things like Memorial Day to punctuate the otherwise largely comfortable, safe, pleasurable days with <clears throat> vivid reminders that it costs something, that pain is a reality, um, that suffering actually undergirds the very things that we experience now. And it's that need for kind of that punctuation of our daily reality with what's really real that I so deeply appreciate scripture. Um, because at no point does scripture gloss over uh, pain, suffering, the blood and the gore, if you don't mind me putting it that way, that actually defines so much of our existence. And that's where Paul is at, right, at the beginning of the passage that we're looking at today in chapter 8 of Romans, beginning in verse 18. He's just in the verses before, right, described with incredible richness and incredible hope and incredible joy. This is what it's like. When the Spirit moves within you, and he says, right, and it's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father, that as soon as the Holy Spirit comes in our lives, our hearts are changed, and rather than being in rebellion against God, we finally long to be with him. We finally desire to be in his presence. And the Spirit moves so that we're able to say, you're no longer the God that I'm rebelling against. I have found my true home. I have found my Abba, right? And he says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, that it assures us, even in the hardest, most difficult times in our life, we belong to God. 
not as hired hands that he can dispose of, not merely servants that he orders about, but we are his children. There will always be a welcome for us. And he says, look, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. Not only have we been allowed to be part of the family, right, but we're raised up to the same level that we, with Jesus, will inherit all things. And indeed, if we share in his suffering, so, and indeed, he says, right at uh, verse 17, if we share in his sufferings, Sorry, let me read this once again. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. He says, look, your heart is crying out for God. God reassures you. You are mine. Do not be afraid. You share everything that I have. It's all yours. And one day you will live in glory. And then I think in that dose of reality that we all need, Paul then starts out the next sentence with this. I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that would be revealed in us, right? Even as he's thinking, this is how glorious it is. Your heart's crying out for God. God's crying out for you. You belong to him. But the reality is life's still hard, Paul seems to acknowledge, right? It's not all spiritual bliss, joy, um, and delight all the time. Um, Paul doesn't shy away from the experience of everyday real suffering that we experience. Um, and I suggest that it's not just the suffering of persecution, which the church experiences all the time and that we experience in both major and minor ways individually, but I want to suggest that part of what Paul's struggling with as he thinks about the suffering are the everyday experiences of defeat that we experience as Christians, right? Because you have on the one hand this vision of what incredible glory you live in, and then you think, yeah, in my daily Christian life just doesn't feel so glorif glorifying, right? Glorious most of the time. In fact, it often feels like a slow slog, right? Um, rather than the glory of the transformed body that we will have with Christ, um, increasingly we find our bodies not doing what we desire them to do, both because of sin, but also because of the brokenness of a sinful world, so that we struggle um, as our bodies age, as our bodies break down, as disease and other things ravage us. We think, we're supposed to be glorified. This isn't feeling so glorious. Um, We think about the joy and expectation that we should have. And I don't know about you, but um, while I love seeing you all on a Sunday, there are days I wake up on Sunday and think, <sighs> for a slow wake up and a casual brunch on Sunday, my wife and I were just talking the other day, um, wow, we could get so much done on Sunday if we did not have to go to church. And you go to church, and my daughter, my older daughter, was having a bad morning. She's like, it's so boring. It's the same stories over and over and over. And she's only six, right? She hasn't even been there that long. I mean, for some of us, it's the same story over and over. And you just think, this doesn't feel as glorious as we were hoping. And I love the fact that Paul talks about the glory. He goes, okay, look, there, there's some suffering that you're going to experience. And the problem, I think, with suffering for Christians is that we're so compelled and it's so true that this glorious thing is out there. 
And yet, <clears throat> when you're actually suffering, you can feel so terribly alone. I so appreciated what Joe sh shared right before I went up, right? For all of us, when our, our bodies break down, don't you just feel like you're the only person who must be sick in the entire world as you're laying in bed, right, racked with your fever? Right? Isn't the most isolating thing for those um, of you who have chronic illnesses that you just think, I am so alone in this. I mean, people are trying to be helpful, but I'm the only one experiencing the daily grind of trying to make this work, right? If you've ever been broken by sin, and I think all of us have, right, isn't part of the terrible reality of sin is that you just feel so isolated in the midst of it. You may be doing all these other things, but in your heart you just feel like, I'm dying on the inside, right? I, and, and who do I talk to, to about this? For those of you in struggling relationships, right, isn't one of the worst things when your marriage is struggling that you just think, it's really awkward and difficult to begin to invite other people into this because it's not only my pain and my shame, but I have to involve somebody else and things are tenuous already. The worst thing about so much suffering is that it's so isolating and you feel so alone. And particularly when it's not short-term, but it's extended, I think part of the problem is then you go, well, so I don't even know what to pray anymore. I mean, how many times in a row can I pray the same thing, right? It's the experience of Sunday school that my six-year-old has. It's the same story. It's the same prayer again, God, right? And you begin, and what happens is you, you lose relational connection with other people, and you begin to lose your ability to talk to God because you have nothing left to say. If you've ever been there, then I think Paul very gently and pastorally walks us through. So what do you do then? If the future promise and the present reality, what the Spirit is doing is, is so glorious, then how do we manage with the daily realities and indignities and isolation of suffering that we have? And what Paul says is, look, you are not alone. And he, and he does this in three different ways that I, I find fascinating. One of which he says, look, when you're alone, you have to pray. And if you don't know what to pray, then at least be aware that other people are groaning with you. And, and in this passage, there's three different groanings that you encounter. There's the groaning of creation, there's the groaning of all Christians, and then there's the groaning of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to organize our time that way, right? So he says, look, don't pray alone because creation literally is groaning with you. Look at verses 19 through 22 again. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. What's fascinating is Paul says, look, everything in the world, every bit of creation experiences the same deep sense of frustration that you're experiencing right now. Creation actually shares our experience because it was created for God's glory, right? God made it so it would be delightful, beautiful, and would ring out his praise. And if you read the Psalms and if you read other things, what you just begin to realize is all creation sings out the praise and the glory of God, but, right, but, it's currently frustrated, Paul says. It's currently frustrated because this world is not as it should be. 
God didn't intend for creation to suddenly have plates, tectonic plates, crash into each other and rub in such a way that finally it snaps and 12,000 people die in Nepal. God didn't create a creation, as you look at um, Eden, where things were lush, beautiful, fruitful, and multiplicative for great famines to exist as part of the world begins to turn on itself, right? God did not create <clears throat> the world in such a way that it was designed to be so violent, so deadly, and so difficult that he intended us to live in a garden, not by the sweat of our brow. And so Paul says, look, creation itself, the entire universe is straining because it desires to live for the glory of God, and it can't quite do that completely. And so it's waiting with you to experience freedom, to experience renewal, to experience joy and hope and fullness again. And so literally, as you wrestle with those things in your heart, Every tree and every leaf, every rock and every stone, every river and every ocean, every molecule and every atom resonates with that same sense. This is not how the world is supposed to be. And Paul says its future is tied up with ours. So that in a weird way, he says, look, creation didn't desire to live in this frustrated way, but God frustrated it, right, I think as God was punishing human sin. And one day when humanity is finally revealed to be the children of God, when we're glorified and changed by God, God will release creation to become all that creation was intended to be. One theologian wrote this way, uh, we may, however, assume that the liberty proper to the creation, right, the freedom that creation will experience is indeed the possession of its proper glory. That is, of the freedom fully and perfectly to fulfill its creator's purpose for it, that freedom which it does not have so long as humanity, its Lord, is in current disgrace. That literally, creation is just waiting for all of God's people to be revealed in their Christ-likeness so that it could be revealed as the perfect place of worship for God. And so creation groans. And I wonder if when we run out of words for ourselves, when we can no longer pray with hope or anticipation, perhaps God is saying, look, as you listen to the groans of creation, realize creation is praying with you and for you. You aren't alone. Perhaps when you encounter the devastation of an earthquake in Nepal, beyond praying for those who are afflicted, right? The thousands who died, the tens of thousands who remain homeless, the hundreds of thousands of children who will not go to school because schools no longer exist. Um, beyond praying for them, part of what we're designed to do is our hearts to go, that's not how it's supposed to be in this world. And you think, this is not how it's supposed to be in my life either. And so, Lord, I pray with them and allow the agony of the world to be prayed through me. When we read about an Ebola epidemic in Africa, right, where thousands of people die, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, live in terror. Our hearts and souls should cry out, this is not how it's supposed to be. And when we feel dead and we can't pray at all and we can't even be frustrated by our own position because we're so isolated and dead, and we think, oh, thank you for the reminder. This is not how it's supposed to be, and we're invited to pray again. Our longings for more, for redemption, for, for the end of the suffering, find echoes in the turmoil and groans in the world. In some way, right, those things, not good in and of themselves, not justified by this prayer, but the reality of the pain in creation, 
is kind of a nudge. It's the memorial day to the everyday experience of our own life, right? Don't settle. Don't assume that this is normal. Don't forget that there is actually more intended. Harmony, peace, wholeness are intended. Shalom is intended. And if you forget, pay attention. One of the poems I think of most often as I think about the groaning of creation and the longing for more is um, by the British poet Alfred Lord Tennyson. Um, almost all of us probably read it in junior high or high school at one point. Um, and I probably should let our British friends read it because it would sound so much better. But um, he was writing at the death of a friend of his. And um, he reflected hard on how creation groans. Oh, yet we trust that somehow good will be the final goal of ill, to pangs of nature, sins of will, defects of doubt, and taints of blood, that nothing walks with aimless feet, that not one life shall be destroyed or cast as rubbish to the void when God hath made the pile complete, that not a worm is cloven in vain, not, that not a moth with vain desire is shriveled in a fruitless fire or but subserves another's gain. Behold, we know not anything. I can but trust that good shall fall at last, far off at last to all, and every winter change to spring. So runs my dream, but what am I? An infant crying in the night, an infant crying for the light and with no language but a cry. Paul says when, when you can't pray for yourself anymore, then listen to the world because it's agonizing and praying the same prayer that you long to pray. It's not just the world around us, right? But don't pray alone because all Christians groan with the same groaning that you feel this isn't how it's supposed to be. This, there has to be something more than this. Look at what Paul says in verses 23 through 25. Not only so, right? Not only all of creation, but we ourselves, right? The body of Christ who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Right? So he says, don't pray alone at feeling isolated because every Christian shares the experience that you have, not in the particulars, but at its core. <clears throat> Paul says, look, we all have the fruit, first fruits of the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is indwelling us. He's beginning to change us. We are looking more Christ-like this. Don't despair. But in some ways, because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, because we can taste the difference that it should make, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we groan inwardly because we eagerly wait for our full adoption, the full redemption of our bodies, right? Isn't that the hardest thing about it for those of you who are already Christ followers, that you know what holiness should taste like and feel like in your life, and yet the more and more the Holy Spirit works within you, the further and further you realize you are from it, right? The more and more that you think, I know God is a God who heals, and some of us have experienced his healings, that when the healing doesn't come, you think, why not? I know what that would be like for my soul to be healed and my body to be made whole. And it seems so far away. I remember a student of mine, back when I was on campus, um, grew up in a Christian home, um, was uh, sexually abused multiple times before she got to college. Um, twice by church leaders, another time by um, uh, her date to prom. 
um, another time by a family member. And so she arrived at the university a brilliant, uh, talented, driven, and terribly broken. And finally, um, I think it was in her third year, all just completely fell apart, right, as the long-term trauma began to manifest. And so uh, actually committed, went to psychiatric care at a hospital for a while, but she just didn't feel safe. And um, as she came back out and as she, uh, I met with her as a staff worker, um, my role was to be the safe religious figure in her life because nobody else had been safe with her before. So we had established very clear boundaries of how to talk together, where we would meet and how we would meet. Um, but I remember um, her sense during that first summer, she said, it just feels like everything is so dark in my life. And she said, the, the worst thing is I don't doubt God's love. But it's actually the experience of knowing God loves me that makes the pain of everything that I've experienced and this current sense of absence so terribly painful for me right now. Because I can almost taste what it should be like. And it feels so distant from where I'm at right now, right? And it's in that space between that initial taste of the first fruits of the Spirit's promise working in us and what we actually are living now that Paul says, look, we all groan with that. Um, and so sometimes, exhausted and wordless with it, we groan. And what's critical for us as a community, right, is that all of us, if we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, all are groaning in the same way. All of us should be pretty dissatisfied with where we are in our walk with Jesus right now. None of us feel as intimate or as close to him or as submitted to him as we would like to be. All of us, if we're actually growing in Christ-likeness, are so much more aware of how we're constantly failing, how we're unable to do the things that we desire to do, and how frequently we fail to do the things that we know we ought to do, how simple acts of kindness actually require a great deal of effort on our part, as our sister shared earlier, right? Our immediate response is, this is going to be trouble. And it takes a significant effort to say, I'm not going to let that stop me. I'm going to offer this person a cup of coffee, and then when I'm rebuffed, come back with an offer of tea. When for most of us, it would just be so much easier to quietly wash our clothes. The reality, right, is that we aren't alone when we pray, I feel so alone, Lord, and I don't even know what to say to you anymore because it's the same struggle day after day, year after year. The great thing is for any person who claims to be a follower of Christ who shows up on a Sunday, that's our shared experience as much as the hallelujah is. As much as the joy and the pleasure and delight of Christian fellowship is, which is true and it's palpable when you come to visit when I come to visit you all here at CBC, equally true is that everybody's equally dissatisfied. Wouldn't it be amazing to base our fellowship not just on our shared testimony of God's goodness, but of our shared dissatisfaction with where we are? To break through the isolation that we experience when we're in that place to say, yes, I'm struggling and I don't know what to do and I've run out of things to pray, I suspect there wouldn't be a person in this room who would say, I feel the same way too. And if you don't have the words at this moment, then let me have the word, let me pray words for you. Right? That's why we pray together in community as our brother did for us this morning. Because sometimes you come to church and you just have no words left to say. 
And so somebody prays for you. And then you think, those are the words I needed to hear. Right? Those are the, that's what I needed to say to God, and I couldn't say it myself, but somebody else will say it for me today. Right? It's why we meet in scattered churches. It's why, for those of us who grew up in a liturgical tradition or participate in that in our um, devotions, that it can be so helpful sometimes to pray a prayer that somebody else has prayed for a couple hundred years because the prayers that I'm coming up with today just don't cut it. It's partially why I want to suggest that um, as our world broadens, as we int in, uh, intentionally engage in mission, and hear the stories of the missionaries that you support and the people that they work with, it's critical for us because then all of a sudden their groans become our groans and our groans can become their groans. Um, a few weeks ago, I was at a consultation with the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. It's the worldwide body of intervarsity-like movements. Um, because we were founded by a British movement, it's not an American-driven thing. It's more of like a, a, ca a very nicely organized Commonwealth UN-like experience, right? Um, and so... We were having a consultation on campus access issues, which is one of my areas of briefing, but we had, I had fascinating conversations. There was a woman from Nepal there talking about what is it like to do ministry in a Hindu kingdom. Um, we was, I was talking with a brother from South Sudan um, who's watched his country um, be birthed with great hope and great joy, then finally becoming frustrated. Now I was talking with a young a leader from Vietnam. I mean, it was amazing, the conversations we were having. And I probably shouldn't have said that last country. But... Um, this colleague of mine from Nepal landed in Kathmandu 10 minutes before the earthquake struck. Right? I, I was worried that she didn't make it back because the rallies of her plane had it landed before the earthquake. She was not going to get in for a while. I think I'm groaning and praying for Nepal in a different way because I know somebody, right? Um, I just read last week uh, most of the NGOs are withdrawing from South Sudan because it's too dangerous. And I think about my brother Joseph there. And what's it like to raise a family there and to be a witness for Christ there? And to know he's not going to leave as this is his country, right? Um, the more and more we know these people and their stories, the more and more the body of Christ becomes richer, fuller, and bigger for us, the more all of a sudden I have no words to pray for Nepal or South Sudan right now, but I can groan with them. And I remind them they aren't alone. And I'm reminded as they suffer that I'm not alone. It's why I want to suggest for all of us it's stepping out and meeting people that's so critical for us. I suspect for those of you who um, provide some worship services for um, the nursing home nearby or at a prison, that those are so critical for us, not just for them. Uh, because for some of the folks in the nursing home who are losing their ability to remember, to groan with them and for them and to hear their groans enriches our own ability to do so, right? For those of you who do prison, I mean, we could go on and on. But Paul says, look, creation itself is saying this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And the body of Christ is saying this isn't the way it's supposed to be. You aren't alone. And then Paul kind of taps it, tops it off, right? He says, look, if it's not enough that every molecule in the universe is already doing this, if it's not enough that all of the body of Christ, which will last for eternity, is doing it as well, then take comfort in this, brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit is doing it with you. Right? He goes on to say in verse... Um, 26 through 30. In the same way that creation has been groaning and the body of Christ has been groaning, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we to pray for, right? And that's the hardest thing for some of us. We don't actually know what the solution should be. 
or it's clear we've gotten a no, so we don't know what else to ask for, or sometimes it's just too complex, right? I know what I'd like to do, but I know I'd probably mess it up, so I'm just like, I don't know how to solve this. When you don't know what to pray for anymore, the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. That word again. Isn't it amazing when you run out of things and when you have no words left, the Holy Spirit takes the groaning in your heart that's inarticulate and inexpressible and turns that into prayer for us, right? It's an amazing testimony of what the Holy Spirit does on this Pentecost Sunday, right? So that the Holy Spirit articulately testifies to who Jesus is through the scriptures and through the testimony of the church. The Holy Spirit, when he came at Pentecost, gave the church new ways to speak so they could speak the heart language of the entire world, right? The Holy Spirit inspired the early church with prophecy and with teaching so that we have the received teachings of the word now. It gave people prayer languages, and I love that at every level it's articulate, it's clear, it's transparent, it's interpretable, and the Holy Spirit's witness goes as far as even when you've run out of things to say and all you can go is, ugh, the Holy Spirit turns that as well into something that testifies to the goodness of God, to the power of Jesus, and to his reality. Um, and this is good news because Paul says then in verse um, 27, the Holy Spirit is groaning for us, and then he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with, with the will of God. If you have any doubt that the Holy Spirit has any efficacy in prayer, right? like what good is it that somebody else is groaning? Now, great. Right? Paul goes, look, the Lord of the universe and hope, the hope of the world totally now knows what's the groaning in your hearts. Because as the Holy Spirit groans with you and through you, it's God himself who is hearing it and knowing it. It's not just groaning anymore, right? The entire trinity is now getting involved in your groaning as well. And then um, God begins to act. And this is perhaps, right, how God takes these groaning and transforms them into prayer might be an example of how God actually works all things to the good in verse 28. Because that verse we all know has been abused, right? People kind of say, you know, all things work to the good. And they, what they mean to say is your problems aren't really that bad. And it's a terrible abuse of that, of that verse because I think what the verse actually is saying is your problems are terrible, but we can trust that God, in the end, will make something good in you of it. In the same way that he takes your inarticulate groanings and turns it into appropriate prayer before the Lord, right? He takes the mess and then transforms it so that suddenly God is hearing the coherent prayer of his people, crying out, how long, O Lord? He takes the mess in our life, right? And he goes, look, the suffering is real. The pain is sharp. The sense of alienation, abandonment, and loss is inescapable. You are far less Christ-like than I was hoping for at this time, right? He takes all of that, and he goes, I cannot be defeated by that. I, in fact, will still make something good in you through that. I will not necessarily make you happy by means of this, right? But you can be hopeful in the midst of this. I'm thinking of this in particular because um, InterVarsity's president, Alec Hill, um, three weeks ago was diagnosed with a form of bone marrow cancer. Um, it's 
my wife will tell you because she's a doctor, in the kind of the scheme of cancers, it's not the worst kind because you don't die right away. Right, but that's how doctors think. Like, it will kill you right away. So it's in the middle, but it's, it's significant enough and it's difficult enough that um, he was diagnosed two weeks ago. He's going to step down in two weeks from his position as president because the treatment will be um, rigorous enough that he won't be able to continue. And in his um, video message to all staff announcing kind of unexpectedly, I mean, very unexpectedly for um, all of us, um, I have bad news. I'm, I'm going to resign in two weeks. Um, he said, you know, I'm not happy about what happened, but I am hopeful. I don't know what God is doing by means of this, but because of my own experiences over the last 60-plus years of faith, uh, right, of walking with Jesus, not, I mean, 50-plus years of walking with Jesus, but 60 years, like he said, I know that I can't see it from this side, but 12 months, 18 months, two years from now, if I shall live, I will have more perspective on what God is doing by means of this in me. And I'm convinced whatever it is, it's designed to mold me into Christ-likeness. It's designed to cause me to cling more closely to him. It will be designed for my ultimate good, even if I don't experience it in, as an immediate good in my life. And it's a good word for us. So what is it with all this groaning in this passage? Are they just wordless cries? No. Are they just desperate Partially, but it's interesting that as Paul talks about this groaning, there's one really concrete image that he offers us to explain the nature of the groaning that we should have as Christians given the hope that we have, right? And it occurs in verse 22 when he says, the whole of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now, I'm a guy, so I'm no expert in childbirth pain, but what strikes me about childbirth pain is this. It's very painful. <laughs> Thank God for the epidural, as far as I'm concerned, watching it from afar. It's clearly, as you watch people in labor, all-consuming, right? Um, I don't get the sense most women, particularly toward the end of childbirth, going, could I have my smartphone? Because I could be multitasking right now, <laughs> right? It's really painful. It's totally all-consuming, and in a very strange way, it's also isolating because at that point, from everybody I've ever talked to, and I tend to ask women these kind of questions because I'm odd that way, um, your focus becomes very clear, right? The other people in the room are somewhat of annoyance. They may be helpful trying to coach you, but in the end, it's you, the pain, and a desire to have this baby come out. And there's a purpose to it. And at the end of that purpose, there's glory. It doesn't change the fact that it was painful. It doesn't change that it was all-consuming and weirdly isolating it at the time. But um, those pains, as much as there are, please stop it now, our pains are grown filled with expectation of what's to come. Right? It's what keeps people going during labor. Because they don't, at least they can't, at any point go, let's just stop now, take a break. And as a number of nurses that I've talked to have said, and it's enough that keeps them coming back <laughs> despite the pain that they experience. And that's what Paul says our groaning should be like. Expressing real pain. At times, totally all-consuming. That's all we can think. That we have nothing articulate to say. But the groaning comes with a deep sense of expectation of what will be the end result. Right? A certain degree of hope that doesn't 
at all diminish the reality of the pain, but allows us to endure. Eager expectation. Wanting the pain to be over, yes, but with deep hope of what comes on the other side of the pain, even more so. It's glory. And maybe that's why Memorial Day is such a critical holiday to speak to this passage, right? Because the suffering is real on Memorial Day. The loss is real. The pain is real. I've listened to a number of media reports talking to um, the members of the armed forces who are tasked with going to a family's home and ringing that doorbell and delivering the news. Right? Pain, loss, and suffering are real. And we trust that the result of suffering ultimately, because of what Christ has accomplished, is lasting peace, real security, and the flourishing of all of creation. Not perfectly now, as anybody with any sense looking at Memorial Day would say. But until it is perfect, we'll groan. But Paul says you don't have to groan alone. And that's good news. Let me pray for us. Lord, you know the longings of our heart better than I could possibly. And so I just pray to my own groanings to you. I pray, make me more like you in suffering so that I would share in your glory. Ease the suffering and pain of the world around us and the world within us. And if you choose not to do it, then give us sufficient hope to trust that one day you will free us and free all of creation. And we will become and we will see all that you intended the world to be.